that Europe. Yeah. Yeah, so um, listen, I'm uh, really interested in this area of uh, psychotherapy, the, the chronic pain. Um, I've been dealing with it for a while, and I've talked to many people who are also dealing with it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I, I had no idea that this was a whole field. Yeah, yeah it's people, a whole, whole, whole yeah. separate, separate field, field here, a different, different way, way of treating chronic pain. pain. Yeah, yeah, I, I just honestly had no idea that this was actually a thing up until like two months ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, for for a while also too, when dealing with chronic pain, I was still trapped in the paradigm of there's something wrong with my body that they can't diagnose, you know. So <laughs> there, there's something that's not coming up in the tests. Maybe this other test I should do, or this test, or that test, or this doctor, or that doctor. You know, I've I've been just stuck in that cycle, and I assume many people might be in that same place, right? Definitely, Definitely. especially, especially uh, here, in, here North in North America, America there's people, people are really, are really stuck, stuck in that, in that cycle. cycle. Right. Yeah, and it, and it's tricky, right? Because you the the pain is in the body, and it can be really really bad. And so, obviously, you would logically think that something is wrong in that area. There's right. some right. damage, right? right. So right. for for this whole other field, like reading your work, reading um, or reading Alan Gordon's work, Dr. Clark, um, Dr. Schubiner, etc. It, it presents a different perspective um, for dealing with chronic pain. And it's really, it's, it's really revolutionary and it's really counterintuitive because you, you would, it, it's still like you're reading it and it seems compelling, but there's still like this idea of no, 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 there must be something wrong with my body. Like it's a very, it's kind of a radical approach. That's some, that's a little hard to comprehend yeah, not, yeah. not not concept like conceptually it makes sense to me and, and might make sense to a lot of people but when you're dealing with a lot of chronic pain the 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 ideas about the pain are so ingrained in your mind that well, it's totally. hard to look at it from a different perspective totally, totally. it's it, it, it is different, different than, than what a lot of people, people are taught, taught especially, especially as i said a lot, a lot of people in north america, america we're, we're taught, taught to think of the mind, the mind and the body is completely, completely separate and so something going on in the body is due to something wrong in the body not to something that might be going on in the mind so it is a it's a revolutionary idea to think that they're very very interconnected yeah yeah and and also we should mention um if i'm going to be a a proper podcast host <laughs> you are the clinic director at mind body therapy center in portland oregon yep yep that's, that's right i was, I was uh, uh i'm the executive, executive director the clinical director here um and, and i'm also a clinical supervisor at the pain psychology center which is based in los angeles mm. is that where alan gordon works at yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. So, so I was one, one of the founding members, members with him, and a couple. Of, there were two other of us. So there's four, four of us total that started the Pain Psychology Center. Mm. So, hey, Rob, I'm, I'm sorry to bug you, but the echo is really bad. bad. Uh, is, is there any? I don't know if I'm. Are you, are you on, on headphones or something? I'm not on headphones. Would that be possible? Because I can really only hear myself talk right now. Oh, you can't hear me properly. I can, I can, but the, the, the echo is delayed, delayed enough, enough that when you speak, speak I'm, I'm in, uh, still hearing myself. myself. Really? That's weird. Um, yeah, let me, okay, let's pause and let me put on my headphones. and see Thank if you, I appreciate it. Yeah. Okay, is this better at all? Oh, so much better. Thank you. Is it? Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Uh, thank you for adjusting. That is so much better. I was, I was just really? thinking that it, I can... I can handle a little bit of echo for a few minutes, but if we're going to do the longer podcast, I appreciate you making yeah. that switch. So. Yeah, no worries. Has my audio changed at all? Uh, you're just a bit quieter, but totally fine. Okay. So, yeah, no, it, okay. it sounds it sounds great. So okay. thank you. All I right. appreciate it, Rob. Yeah, yeah, of course. So uh, before we talk about uh, this field and we maybe talk about a few 
uh, case studies in mm-hmm. this. We should also talk about just how you got into this. Um, were you were you yourself struggling with chronic pain? Is that what led you to this area? Well, it's kind of a, a I'm kind of a an odd case in this in this field because I've had chronic pain in the past. I dealt with migraines before, and I've dealt with knee pain. But I um, did not come into this field because of that. I came into this field because a professor of mine in grad school, we kind of hit it off. His name is Alan Gordon. And we we kind of hit it off, and he asked me if I wanted to start the center with him. And uh, he was really focused on wanting to treat mind-body issues. Uh, and, and I grew up with my mother, worked, worked in healthcare for a long time. And so I was kind of interested in this, if not necessarily wanting to pursue it professionally, I was always been kind of interested in this field. Um, and so I, you know, we started the center and I really, that's when I kind of became more passionate about it. And it was through that lens that I was able to see, oh, all of these things that have gone on with me, like with my migraines or with my knee pain, those are absolutely more psychogenic or neuroplastic type issues that I didn't really realize at the time. I think one difference between myself and a lot of people that I work with is that I'm like profoundly lazy. <laughs> so when the people that I work with, the people that tend to get chronic pain and really want to get to the root of it are people that are really driven and want to uh, really want to solve it. And I think for me, it somewhat worked to my benefit that with my own chronic pain, I was like, uh, kind of too lazy to, <laughs> to try and fix it. So I just kind of let it be, which in some ways is actually like now I know is like worked to my benefit that I was able to just relax and let go of worrying about it versus getting caught in the cycle of trying to fix it and worrying about it. We can get more into that later, but that's kind of, uh, where in retrospect, what I was able to see for myself is how I was, how I dealt with some chronic pain and then how I was able to get past it without, without much. Uh, I mean, I was talking to a therapist at the time, but we weren't talking about pain. Um, but without much help, uh, focused on pain. But anyway, so we started the pain psychology center and it's been about, uh, 10 or 11, I think 11 years ago, we started it maybe 10 years ago. Um, and yeah. And then just the last couple of years is when I, tra- I transitioned from being a clinical director there and starting my own center here in Portland. Cause I live in Portland now, but I still do the clinical supervision, um, via zoom over, uh, at the pain psychology center. And I'm happy to talk more about my own uh, experiences with chronic pain, if it's helpful for anyone, for sure. Um, especially uh, for those yeah. people struggling with migraines, I know that that's one that one that feels kind of acutely different for people than like knee pain or back pain or what have you. Mm. But um, but yeah, I'm happy to talk about those if you have any specific questions yeah. about that. Yeah. So Alan Gordon was your professor, you said. Yeah, he was the very first professor I had on the very first day of grad school. Um, and we just kind of hit it off. So there was kind of a group of us that would hang out after class and talk. And then uh, I ended up taking a few classes with him, as I said, because we, we got along pretty well. And then he just, he asked me what, before I was even done with school, he said, Hey, do you want to start the center with me? So, mm. so we did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah and, cool. and, and, it was in a great place at the right time. And I re- really enjoy the work too. It's, I mean, it's amazing work. So. Yeah. So can you maybe explain the kind of broad idea behind psychosomatic pain? Can you explain what what happens, broadly speaking, in many of these cases? Yeah. So just to let you know, we actually don't use the word psychosomatic anymore because it is such a loaded word. And people think that what we're saying is that their pain is all in their heads, which doesn't is not what we're saying. That is 100 percent not what we're saying except for the fact that technically all pain, all discomfort is in your head. And what I mean by that is without the brain, our body wouldn't naturally feel discomfort. What happens to 
something that goes on in our bodies that it sends a signal to our brain saying, hey, something is wrong here. And then our brain says, oh yeah, let's send a signal back to that knee or that foot or your back and give some discomfort there so that this person doesn't injure it further or doesn't do anything further. Now, uh, the work that I do in mind-body fit, like mind-body work, is uh, understanding that neuroplasticity plays a large role in people developing chronic symptoms in their body. So uh, essentially what happens is that neural pathways in the brain can misfire, giving us symptoms of something quote-unquote wrong in our body when actually structurally there is nothing wrong. So it's estimated to be about 80 to 90% of chronic pain is actually has a very strong neuroplastic component. Um, I know you talked to Dr. Clark before on this podcast, and he talks a lot about that, about the 80 to 90%. Um, and, and what that means essentially is just that the way we feel and the way we think plays into the way that we, I'm sorry, the way we feel, I mean emotionally the way we feel and the way we think plays into the way we experience our bodies and the way we feel in our bodies. It's, you know, as simple as if you're nervous for a talk you're about to give or something like that, and you notice that your stomach is, a, is in knots or you have butterflies, that's your body responding to a psychological situation. Now, that's an acute version that happens usually like a short period of time, maybe the 20 minutes or a few hours before you have to give that talk. But uh, under the right circumstances, it can become chronic, not just those stomach issues, but other physical issues throughout the body. Does that, does that kind of sum it up? I, I'm always not sure how, how deep to go here. But we've done plenty of research, and actually there's pain centers around the world that have done research that demonstrates that you can actually predict who's going to uh, develop chronic pain based on fMRIs of people's brains. So the way that our brain forms, which has a lot to do with emotional experiences and our, our thought processes, actually can uh, lead us to potentially developing chronic pain. There's that great study out of Northwestern that they, I think they predicted up to 70% accuracy who was going to develop chronic pain just by looking at people's brains. And that's all they did, which is really fascinating. Mm, yeah, yeah, that is, a, that is fascinating. And, you know, many people struggling with chronic pain, they have a hard time wrapping their heads around this because they, they may not see anything clearly um, psychologically disturbing to them like they, they may yeah. feel like you know like their lives are fine like what how is my brain causing this when you know i have a job and i have kids and there's nothing seemingly wrong with my life totally totally and that's that's common for most people in chronic pain for some of us we can clearly see like hey i'm under an acute amount of stress or you know things are really not going well in my life but for others they don't really see that and sometimes that's because there's a lot going on in the subconscious that they're not aware of uh, other times it's because of just kind of the personality that they have. They tend to be more type A, tend to be an achiever, tend to be a doer. They really want to um, kind of accomplish a lot, um, tend to be kind of a perfectionist. Those are That's the kind of personality that tends to develop chronic pain. Now, people that have that personality don't feel like there's anything really wrong necessarily, but they also may not necessarily have an awareness of how much pressure they're putting on themselves or the kind of relationship they have with themselves or where those personality traits may have come from in their past. You know, you can also predict based on the ACE score, which is adverse childhood experiences. Um, you can predict based on the number of ACEs you have, which could be anything from having parents of divorce or parents that divorced or being, a, um, you know, being bullied as a kid or any number of things, having a chronic illness when you were a kid all of those things actually make it more likely that you will develop something, uh, develop a chronic issue later in life. 
So we can kind of see from those, those kinds of things, people that me feel like, Hey, everything is psychologically fine with me right now. I've got a partner and kids. I've got a good job. Everything is great. But the things that happen to us in our past actually influence how we behave and how we feel about ourselves today, which I know sounds kind of abstract and maybe sounds a little bit woo woo to some people, but you think about, um, a tree, a tree growing, and this is maybe a cheesy analogy, but a tree growing, if you, uh, have it growing under the right circumstances, it'll grow straight up and it'll look very healthy and very um, natural. If you have it growing in a very weird environment, say on the side of a cliff or something, uh, and the wind is constantly blowing, then it will grow off to the side and the branches will grow a little bit differently and it's doing what it, it needs to do to survive. Now that's totally fine. It's adapting. But what that means is that when we put that kind of like crooked tree in a space where it needs to kind of blend in or function with uh, amongst the normal looking trees or the kind of straight up and down trees, it's going to have some problems. So that's kind of what happens to us if we grow up in an environment where things are really tough is that we kind of start to grow a little bit differently in order to survive and adapt. And I get it. That's kind of a cheesy analogy to use a tree. So feel free and roll your eyes at me. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, that makes sense to me. And you're saying like there are certain personality traits that can that that can predict yes. people who have chronic pain. Um, yes. Can can we drill more into that? You said perfectionism. Um, what, what else? Yeah, perfectionism is a big one. People that kind of consider themselves Type A, which is people people that like a, a certain amount of structure. Um, people that uh, we we get more generally we get more math and science people in the chronic uh, pain population. That's not always true, but that's, there's a general trend towards those kinds of people. Um, people that like those kind of black and white thinking where things are very clearly either right or wrong. We also get a lot of lawyers as well. Um, so there's a certain, uh, proclivity towards professions based on this, uh, these, uh, personality types. Um, let me think it's a lot of, I always joke with people that we rarely see a late, I mean, this is me coming from Southern California for 15 years, but we rarely, if ever see the laid back surfer develop chronic pain, you know, we, the guy who's sitting on the beach most, most of the day, smoking pot and, mm. <laughs> and surfing, we don't see him develop chronic yeah, pain. I wish he, I was like that. <laughs> well, and that's what most people that have that more, the kind of more structured, more rigid personality. That's what we say. We say, gosh, I kind of wish I was the laid back surfer. Um, but that's just not our personality, right? That's just not how we, how we function. So, but I think that helps kind of put it in contrast is if you imagine the people that don't necessarily tend to develop chronic pain, it's people that are really, you know, for lack of a, a better way of saying it at the moment, really chill. Does that, does that help at all, Rob? I'm not sure that answers your question fully. Mm. Yeah. Yes. And, and like, like people who do suffer from chronic pain, they tend to be um, hyper-focused or obsessed, uh, obsessive or so, very self-critical as well, very yes. hard on themselves. Yes, absolutely. That's kind of one of the things that people don't necessarily realize oftentimes is how self-critical they really are. And mm. there is, if we did a Venn diagram of people with OCD and people that develop chronic pain, there is an overlap there. Um, there is kind of an obsessive nature to this population. We tend to be, you know, you, you tend to give us a task and we will do it and we will do it very well and we will do it better than most people. So we tend to be achievers because we are kind of obsessive and hyper-focused. There's a hyper-vigilance that we have about uh, about our pain too. Oftentimes the people that are in pain um, tend to research a ton about their pain. And all it's very common for me to talk with a new client who has read 10 books 
uh, and they just found out about, you know, 10 books about their pain that they've just developed a few months ago, and they have dove way deeper into it than the general population might because they're achiever and they want, they're an achiever and they want to solve the problem. So exactly what you said, kind of hypervigilant, hyper, hyper-focused, mm. a little bit obsessive. Not mm. always, but sometimes. Mm. Does this ring a bell for you, Rob? Did you do no, oh, oh, no. No, I, absolutely. Yeah, that does <laughs> ring a bell. I feel like we're, we're talking about me, maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate yeah. your openness no. here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm a writer, and I'm, I'm sharing my experiences through my writing, so I have no issue in talking about certain more personal things. And I, I definitely see... Uh, obsessiveness for sure like overly fixating on one yeah. thing like yeah. sort of anything in life hyper focusing on it and you know like the and self-criticism for sure and i notice this in other people who have chronic pain as well and f- for me like self-criticism it's it's sort of unconscious it's like an automatic response sort of in my yeah. head totally the, the way i look at myself and it's and and there's a seeming a seemingly valid justification for it, which is like, oh, I need to do better in this, this, or that. You know, I, I need to be less late, like you mentioned, being very lazy. Like that, that's an issue that I have. And as somebody who has very high expectations for himself, who has really big ambitions as a public thinker and writer, mm-hmm. there's there's this uh, desire, there's this need to be on the top of my game all the time. And it's very difficult to be that way. It's, it's often difficult to find motivation, uh, especially as somebody who uh, I'm sure many people can relate to this over the course of the pandemic and more and more as yeah. um, people are having kind of more individualistic careers because of social media and the way the online world is evolving. It's you, you're kind of your own boss. You know, right. you're like, a, you know, I started freelance writing for the New York Post and the Globe and Mail and some other big fancy magazines and newspapers. And uh, eventually now I'm at this point where I am writing more for myself um, on my own publication and also occasionally contributing to the big newspapers, but no one's really keeping me accountable. It's only me right. because I'm an right. independent writer. I'm not, em- I'm not employed by a magazine to write every week. Right. And, and a lot of people, you know, in the social media uh, influencing industry or journalism, media, podcasting, um, many other things that they're sort of their own bosses. So it's difficult totally. to be disciplined and set a schedule and do certain things so not not being able to fully live up to my potential on my own when I don't have a professor or a teacher or a boss who's going to tell me to wake up every morning at this time and show up and you know work for 6 7 hours it's hard to be focused and hard to have that high level of productivity so that you know you know reasons like that can justify this harsh self criticism totally. and you're, you're kind of st- stuck in this trap of um, I, I'm not good enough and I need to do better, but I'm also not going to, but it's also very difficult to change and to actually have that discipline. So you're kind of, you're, you're stuck in this loop of not being able to do, uh, much about it, but, and you're also, um, constantly automatically criticizing yourself for not being able to do it. Totally. We feel like that's the only way to motivate ourselves is to be really hard on ourselves is to criticize ourselves about what we're not doing well enough or fast enough or hard enough. Mm. And and as I've uh, been talking to my own uh, psychotherapist about this, that oftentimes the the way out of that vicious cycle could be more of like a self love, Mm -hmm. more having more self compassion, especially in my case and in many people's cases, when certain 
behaviors um, like, like in my case I probably have ADHD which is not uh-huh. diagnosed formally <laughs> uh-huh. and I'm not willing to you know take Adderall or you know whatever medications to um, d- yeah. treat that in the conventional means I'm much more interested in the holistic healthy um, understanding of why I have these things and really getting at the root cause rather than just putting pills in my mouth um, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, in, in talking to my psychotherapist about this, um, he, he's suggested that having a lot of compassion and love and understanding for why these behaviors are there and how they were shaped during childhood, when there's a lot of stress and trauma that can yes. create obsessiveness, hypervigilance, Absolutely. um, this uh, intense self-criticism. So w- would you, would you agree with that for a lot of people who have that intense self-criticism and it's and they're having a hard time getting out of it and actually changing their lives, that there might be um, a kind of a radically different way of looking at it and actually kind of loving yourself in some very deep way. And perhaps those obsessive or um, overly self-critical parts can relax a little bit and kind of ease and then allow you to be more productive and mindful. I completely agree. Yes, 100%. I'm reminded of the work of Kristen Neff. I don't know if you know her name, but she is an excellent researcher and her work is all about uh, the benefits of self-compassion. And before I became a therapist, I would have just rolled my eyes and been like, that is so cheesy. Like, what are you talking about? Um, But it wasn't until I really started doing this work and and learning more about it that I realized how important self-compassion really is. Because the opposite of that is really a cruel relationship with ourselves. And as someone, like, I like to consider myself a pretty nice, like, pretty warm kind of guy. But I did realize through the work, through all this work I've done as a therapist and my own personal work, um, that I was treating everybody else way nicer than I would ever treat myself. I was treating myself pretty harshly and pretty poorly, um, which is uh, really unfortunate when I think you probably like to think of yourself the same way, like a pretty nice, warm guy. But the reality is we're that to everybody, but not to ourselves, which is cruel. It's just cruel. So absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And I'm glad your therapist is pointing that out to you. But most people that develop that kind of cruel relationship with themselves, it was it's because it was either modeled to us, meaning there was a, a, a parent or a role model who did not treat us very well or who motivated us through fear and through anger, um, or because we were in an environment that we kind of had to achieve to the nth degree in order to get praise, in order to survive, in order to feel good about ourselves. So those two things are oftentimes why people uh, develop that uh, inner critic, that really self-critical. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That really resonates. So you're, you're saying like when your well-being or your your self-worth is conditional on some kind of external success, whether that's yes. grades or achieving in sports or graduating from college or making money, um, right. when, when that happens, then you sort of internalize that? Like how, how does that work? Yeah, exactly. If if we are only given love, essentially, or I mean, you can think of love or praise or any sort of congratulations when we achieve, then we think that we are unlovable unless we are achieving. In which mm. case, we're going to develop a relationship with ourselves that says you are nothing unless you're achieving. Whether it be, as you said, sports, grades, money, whatever, our brain mm. says, okay, the way to feel love and the way, way to feel good is to achieve. Otherwise, you are failing. Mm. you mm-hmm. are not lovable right yeah right it's so and that, that, we see that a lot especially right. with parents that are very kind of more strict um yep. uh, productivity uh style parenting mm. yeah and you often see that you know in my background and, and many other people's backgrounds as well with with immigrant parents parents who came yes. from a different country you know that's 
you're selecting for a certain kind of behavior and a certain yes. kind of lifestyle and approach yep. to things because of financial hardship um, mm -hmm. and whatnot. So it's very, I don't know if that relates to you or if you have experience with clients like that, but that, that uh, seems to be, that seems to be pretty prevalent. It's very prevalent. It is not my personal story, but I've worked with so many clients with that story living in LA, especially LA is such a, a right. city full of first gen yeah. immigrants or people from literally all over the world. And it, it makes sense when you think of, if you're coming to a new country to give your kids a better opportunity, whether you uh, consciously put that pressure on them or not, they're going to feel it that, Oh, I'm here because my parents want me to have a better opportunity to have a better or whatever, to, to be able to succeed or thrive in this environment here. Um, which is great and wonderful, but also that's a ton of pressure to have to live up to that. Uh, so there's a, just a built-in amount of uh, a built-in expectation of success or hope for success there. Mm, yeah, does that yeah. resonate? Yeah, no, it, it does. Yeah, and often people then go on this treadmill of finding success in the outside world. Mm -hmm. And you know, in, in, in my case, it's I, I've gotten a lot of it at a very young age for unique. Yep. Uh, reasons <laughs> and, yeah. and, 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 that, and that's really good because, um, you, you know, like doing podcasts with Jordan Peterson, you know, Sam yeah. Harris, talking to some of these really cool people that I admire, um, having Joe Rogan read some of my stuff, like so, some of these things that are very profound and amazing. And, and all of that kind of just shows you, um, at the end of the day, like that still doesn't give me what I was looking for. Uh, and oh. so in some ways I'm sort of uniquely privileged, whereas other people I know around me who are suffering from, chronic pain um, or other sorts of uh, mental illness, depression, anxiety, they don't have that, but they're still stuck in the illusion of once they have some kind of massive success, then right. they'll feel good. Then, then they'll feel good about themselves. And it, it's, it sort of works in the short term yep. or, or, or it can work. It's a fix. Kind of it's a quick fix. <laughs> yeah. And it, and, it, and it can work kind of externally. Uh -huh. um, and there's a kind of, an, there is an illusory quality of it yeah. in that, there is a bit of ego inflation that happens for sure when, when you're talking oh, to yeah. some of these big people, when some of these things happen, but that doesn't seem to really fix the inner self-critic. Absolutely not. It is, it is a quick fix that gives you an ego boost, makes you feel good for a short period of time. And uh, I have worked uh, living and working in LA for so long. Um, I worked with a number of very high profile actors and people in the entertainment industry and mm. it doesn't matter how many Oscars you've won or how much money you've made or how many, uh, you know, what your what the score on Rotten Tomatoes is of your latest movie <laughs> that that high lasts for about a week or two. And then you're still living with yourself. And unless we actually change the nature of the relationship we have with ourselves, mm. we'll just go right back to the way we were feeling. So you're spot on. I mean, success feels mm. good. It's a it's a great feeling, but it's not it doesn't actually change anything for us. And it's really it can actually be really damaging to the ego long term. Too much of that superficial success makes us feel like we are, we are love, we are loving ourselves when we're not really, potentially, mm. potentially. Yeah, and we're, like we're fishing in the wrong pond. We're yeah. just looking for success, and and oftentimes for those kind of people like like myself, it can perhaps sometimes result in um, overly kind of showing off or displaying one's success as a means of, of yes kind of like, Hey, look at me. Like, Hey, I'm worth it too. I I'm a good person too. You should pay attention to me. But, but really it's like the, the only validation that is really going to resonate and heal you in the long term is a kind of self validation. Is yeah, that right? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And, and what we, uh, you know, people are always, 
I guess superficially in our world, people are always striving for happiness. But in the mental health world, we would argue that happiness is fleeting just like any other um, any other feeling. We don't want to chase happiness just like we don't want to chase anger or sadness. We just experience the feeling and move on. What we're really after is a sense of peace with ourselves. And the only way to do that is to change the relationship with ourselves. Mm. I, I tell people that like some of the most at peace I've felt with myself, and, and this is a, a bit cliche, I'm aware of that, but some of the most at peace I've felt with myself is after doing some meditation retreats. I'm a big Vipassana meditator and where you go and meditate for 10, 10 days. And uh, that's mm. the time that I find the most amount of peace with myself. The relationship, mm. the, the internal relationship with myself changes quite a bit. Mm. Yeah. I do want to talk about meditation as well with you. Um, there's a lot of, um, parallels you might have on that and that's that's how i kind of got started on this healing journey first mm -hmm. with meditation awesome um there's a few there's a couple other things oh yeah so there was also um this element of masculinity perhaps mm -hmm. that might play a role here of oh, yeah. when you're trying to fix that self critic um you you develop that kind of hardcore jocko willing or david goggins style if you're familiar uh, approaching not actually you'll have to david Goggins. okay with him <laughs> No, no, no worries. Yeah, yeah. David Goggins and Jocko Willink, they're uh, former um, members of the, the armed forces. Okay. And um, they're, they're military people, and now they're self-motivation uh, people. And so on Instagram, they're always talking about, you know, waking up at 5 a.m. and grinding in the gym and, ah, you know, conquer, yes. conquering your conquering your inner bitch, as David Goggins would say. And, you know, really, like, fighting <laughs> with yourself and being in, the, being in this war to really, yeah. like, beat the shit out of yourself and... Um, and conquer these things. And, and Joe Rogan talks about that a little bit too, in, in certain ways and encourages that. But um, I, I, I find that that kind of mentality um, in certain circumstances might be really good, but that does not seem like a sustainable mentality to have to actually address inner issues. No. And it's not a very loving relationship with ourselves. Now I don't know them super well, so I'm not going to speak to their, what their what their you know, encouraging people, how they're encouraging people to behave or to think, but, um, there's nothing wrong with striving to work harder, but if we're doing it through a sense of fear or a sense of anger or upset with ourselves, that's not very healthy. We want to be motivated through a sense of love, which again, I know sounds cheesy, but it's true. We want to be, be really motivated to what would, how would I most lovingly treat myself here? So yeah, but I totally, uh, without knowing who those guys are, I 100% agree with you that kind of this masculinity and this masculine energy can absolutely kind of be this intoxicating uh, way of being and thinking and want to draw us into, yeah, the harder, like I got to get up and push harder at the gym, do more so that I can be the absolute best version of myself uh, and be as, I don't know, strong as I could possibly be, which is great. However, if we're doing that to our own detriment, that's to our own mental health detriment we're not really going to move forward. We're not going to feel good about ourselves. Again, that's chasing ego-based stuff. That's all about the ego. Am, mm -hmm. I, am I in the same in the right ballpark here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the strong inner critic, this can also lead to procrastination as well, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a big That's a big issue that I deal with. Do you see it? You see that in yourself? How so? Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that's, yeah, that, that was kind of my first sign since uh, grade five, I would say. I've been dealing with that. Um, that's sort of the most clear symptom of, uh, um, uh, th that's the most clear symptom of my current behavior and the way I look at things and all the different things I'm suffering from. It seems to 
stem from some kind of procrastination. Mm. And is that because it, it feels like scary to, to start work, to start doing the thing, whatever it is, or what do you think that's about for you? Yeah, there might be some sort of, uh, there's definitely a perfectionism element to it. There you go. Um, yeah. and yeah, that, I think that's a big one. Um, maybe and I don't mean to turn this into a therapy session here, Rob. You don't yeah, have to answer no, this no, question no, if you don't want, but since you no, 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 I, no, I, no, I so. want to answer this question. No, that, that is good. Um, I'm trying to think what else could be driving it. It's It's been there for a very, very long time, always leaving things to the last minute. Um, mm. And perhaps a lack of mindfulness too is like when you're always lost in thought. That's kind of right. a big other issue that I have is I'm, I have a very strong and powerful and vivid imagination. Uh-huh. And as I've been talking to my therapist, um, I don't know if this, this may resonate with you and your clinical experience, um, but... I've, um, my therapist and I are coming to an understanding that perhaps I'm growing up in a very stressful environment. It, it kind of forced me to go inwards and forced me to not pay attention as much to the present moment because the present, the present moment is so harsh and yep. bitter and so difficult to be in. And so you create this kind of inner world to escape to. And so frequent, frequently for me, it's like, you know, like when sitting down and doing something um, or, or even like something like cooking, it's like like cooking and cutting vegetables, let's say. It's like it's really hard to focus and not to start thinking about some future writing project that I want to do or or even some like guilt or some memory from the past. It's, it's very difficult to stay on task with that. And then next thing you know, it's been, you know, two to three hours and you've, you know, you've spent the majority of the day not getting as many things done as you wanted to just being in, just being in your head. Yeah. 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 And you, you know, you, even though you might set times for certain things to do, it's just a lot of time gets wasted inside the head when totally. you're not able to fully focus. Yes. So it's, it's difficult to get out of that. And I'm still exploring how to exactly do that. And, and traditionally the kind of the anecdote for the uh, antidote, excuse me, the antidote for that would be uh, mindfulness meditation, which can be incredibly difficult, especially for those of us with uh, inklings or leanings towards ADHD. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, it can, that would be, be difficulty staying in the present moment. The way to do that, the way to practice that is to, is through mindfulness meditation, which is all about mm. just, you know, staying mindful of the, the exact moment, whether we're chopping vegetables or doing whatever. And it's just one of those things that just takes practice and is very, very hard. And no one ever perfects it, which is also part of the problem for those of us that are perfectionists, is that it, you can't perfect uh, being mindful. There's no such thing. Mm. Yeah, and, and maybe we can talk a bit more about that. So, like, like me- meditation for me, I've been doing it for probably three years. I'm 21 nice. now, yeah. um, and very, you know, very vigorously and in a dedicated manner over the past uh, year and a half, I would say. And it's still like a, a massive challenge. It's still very difficult to do. And um, as I'm talking to my psychotherapist about, th- there might be. Um, other things that might be important to prioritize, mm-hmm. not not as in getting rid of meditation, that's still a daily practice for me. And I still um, am making some kind of progress on it, even though I'm very kind of harsh uh, on myself about it. Okay. Um, and I think the, the, you know, the one sign of progress, they say that the step one, as many people say, is noticing how insane your mind actually is. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, exactly. and, and, and no, noticing this, um, 
this wildfire of thoughts that are constantly burning inside your head that most most people don't even know that that's there. Right. And so right. they're just they're they're oblivious to what's going on in their head. So uh, at least I know what that is like. So so that that's a good sign. And Definitely. and also and also noticing the the rootless nature of thoughts as well. That's a recent insight I've had. That uh, I don't know if you've ever used Sam Harris's meditation app before. Uh huh. Yeah, um, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, yeah. That's where I, I do a lot of my practice at. Nice. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's a wonderful resource, and um, that that's one thing he's always talked about, and I've never really understood until very recently. Of thoughts just kind of come out of nowhere. There's yes. no origin, and to be honest, it's a bit of a destabilizing insight because it. it prompts certain difficult questions about free will. It's like, I'm, I'm just sitting there and I'm just like thoughts are coming and I, and I feel like I have no control. And right. so there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a struggle. I'm in now kind of philosophically with meditation is like, sometimes I feel a little powerless in that right. I've, I have no control over my thoughts. Um, I don't know if that's someplace you've ever been, but that, I'm thinking a lot about that. Yeah. And I'd actually, I, well, I like what you said that it's a little bit destabilizing. That means you're in the, from my perspective, that means you're in a good space because it is a little bit destabilizing when people really start doing this kind of work and they start really challenging themselves to look inward and understand how their thoughts work, how their mind works. It's totally destabilizing. It's pretty crazy to realize that our thoughts are kind of nonsense. <laughs> that we have so many thoughts that just come into our mind that don't, that don't mean anything, that don't, aren't important, that aren't, that they're just there. You know, the, the Buddhist, you probably heard this analogy before, but the Buddhists talk a lot about, this metaphor here, this about the mind being an untamed tiger. And this tiger is bouncing all over the place. It's a, you know, it's distracted by everything and it doesn't even make sense why it's jumping all over the place most of the time. And the goal of mindfulness meditation is to help tame that tiger to at least sit still, even for like five seconds before it gets distracted by, you know, the wind or something and wants to bounce all over the place. That's the way our mind is, is there's constantly new thoughts and new, uh, new things coming to mind that we're chasing after. And the goal is to learn not to chase after them at all, but to try and just be still while all that stuff is happening around us. Mentally, that is. It's tough. Mm. It's really tough. But you're, again, you said destabilizing, which I think is, means you're in a good spot there, Rob. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is destabilizing. <laughs> it's a little scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you realize that you... Like, and I don't know how you would, you might frame this specifically of, of the rootless nature of thoughts, right? Yeah. They come out of nowhere. So does that, mm-hmm. yep. so then what control do we have? I don't know. That's kind of a philosophical question, but then what, what, what do we actually have control over if we're not actually authoring our own thoughts? What, uh, I'm curious what you think. I'm going to do the therapist workaround and ask you what you think about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really struggling with this. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I... It's kind of a long story, I guess, but but, but Sam Harris, who's wonderful when it comes uh-huh. to meditation, he, he's also an advocate of um, free will being in uh, being an illusion. He wrote "Waking Up," right? Isn't that I'm thinking yeah. about Sam Harris? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 And a wonderful book, and I've I've talked to him and interviewed him, and he's nice. very much a hero and an inspiration. But the, the the free will stuff, I think, is kind of atrocious. It's like it, it really. <laughs> It, it yeah. really messes with me. And then, so I, I try to stay away from it though. Over the past few months, just out of curiosity, I got into it and the arguments were so compelling that it makes me feel a little, it makes me feel a little powerless. Um, and, and I, and I guess the, 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 the understanding that I'm, that I have right now is that yes, we don't author our thoughts, but when they come, we just like, we can decide what to do with them possibly. 
Um, although from his perspective, he, he would say no. Like even that, like he he believes in a, a predeterministic universe, um, as many other people do, and so you're you're not really authoring anything. Um, so yeah. Well, my personal you are not authoring. So, well, so I can't hear you. Yeah, can you hear me? Can you hear me? No. Yeah. I had to move something here. Yeah, it's <laughs> difficult to hear. I don't know what's going on here. Maybe the app is having some issues. Yeah, your voice is glitching a little bit. Mm-hmm. Can you hear me now? Um, it's glitching pretty heavily. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. So I'm still sitting in the same place, so I'm not sure what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, hopefully it'll sort itself out. Yeah. Am I clear? Oh, I can hear kind of now. Am I clear to you? No, I can't hear you're cutting it out. Really? I wonder if my and reader and I have no idea. Um, why don't you take like a 60 second pause and maybe it'll resolve itself? Yes, yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, um, we, we should get back to talking about to psychotherapy because that's why I want to. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. That's why I had you on here. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> although I, I could I could I could talk about philosophy for hours too, and that <laughs> would be too. fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when when it comes to meditation, uh-huh. you know, wh- where I'm at in my journey right now, um, in, in collaboration with my psychotherapist, we, we we're talking a lot about um, the potential ways in which meditation, like only doing meditation or, or, or perhaps that there might be other things that I need to prioritize right now that would make the meditation much easier to do. And that's going into childhood, doing inner child work, recognizing, uh, acknowledging and processing some stressful and traumatic things from childhood as a way to then develop more self-love, self-compassion and kind of diminish the power of that inner critic, which could perhaps lead to a more effortless, calm and kind of forgiving meditation practice where you don't feel really, you know, you don't feel really bad or you don't have a super hard time in my case of, of being in the present moment because you're distracted by some amazing thought about the future or some really hurtful thought about the past. Does, does that make sense at all? It does. Yeah. And I think that that's good advice. You sound like you're ready to write a book about all this, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't feel like I'm ready for that. I mean, I I understand some of these things, but I'm still very early on in uh, applying them. And I still have a lot of stuff to work through because because meditation is really, really difficult for me still, especially because of the, the hyper vivid imagination that I have. Well, and, and I would argue that, and and I don't mean this to be self-defeating or, or depressing at all, but, maybe meditation will always be hard for you. And that's not a terrible thing, if that makes sense. It's like for some people, running the mile is very, very difficult. It's just very hard for them. And that's okay. That's kind of, we all have our struggles and things that we are not so good at in life or not so, uh, that don't come as easily for us. And as for someone that, you know, you're an achiever, you've achieved a lot at a relatively young age, having something that maybe isn't coming to you as easily is just that much more difficult, which is totally understandable. Mm. But I think there's also an expectation with meditation people have where it's like, oh, at some point this will get easier. I've talked to a lot of monks before, and they talk about how 
there's no like there's no such thing as an easy meditation. It never comes easily. Now some days it'll be a little bit more restful or more peaceful, I should say not restful, more peaceful than other times, but it's still work. It's always work. Mm. Just like, you know, sometimes you go to the gym, you feel like I feel pretty good, but I'm still sweaty and tired. Other times you go and you're like this was a hard workout, you know, you still it's still difficult. There's still hard work involved. So mm. again, I say that not to be de- de- depressing or defeatist, but perhaps perhaps meditation will always be hard for you and that's okay. Mm. Does that make you yeah. punch me? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, we have to end this podcast. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I think that there's some truth to that. Um, although, of course, when you're training that muscle more and more, it's going to be more effortless. You're going to, of course, have of course. more progress. Of, of course, and I've, I've never done a meditation retreat, which was Sam's recommendation when I spoke uh, to him. And and you know, you you mentioned you're a big proponent of that. Um, I'd love to do that. Not for everybody, but I am a big proponent of it. Yes. I've I've worked with clients early on. I thought everyone should do it. And I had a number of clients that went and tried these meditation retreats and then left halfway through and said, like, this was hell. So, (laughs) so it's not for everybody. Sure. It's very helpful. Yeah. 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 I I assume the caveat would be like having some practice for several months before. So, you know what you're getting into. Yeah, that's part of, that's part of it. Um, just making sure you're in the right headspace at the right time. Uh, right. Obviously, if there's like major stresses going on in your life, it's not a great time to go to a meditation retreat. Um, mm. You want to be at least at least in somewhat of a stable place. Right. So. And uh, and this is another interesting question here, and that's that many people I know, um, and perhaps in my case to some to some extent as well, um, they they've been meditating for like even like decades. Mm-hmm. But they're still very depressed, and they still have very strong uh, impulses. Yeah, and they and they're still not able to get over their issues just through meditation. And totally, it's it's possible they're not doing it the right way. Um, although some of these people I've talked to, they um, they, they experience incredible bliss in many of their pra- in many of their sessions that they do, um, and it feels really sometimes even very transcendental. But then when they get out of it it's very difficult to um, then keep a level head and to feel that joy and bliss when they're not um, closing their eyes and um, repeating a mantra or focusing on their breath. And so for, for a lot of those people, would you say it's possible that there might be kind of a spiritual bypass as it's known um, or that they, they need some, some deep psychotherapy work that's more on the the conceptual layer as opposed to the non-conceptual layer. Potentially, um, I'm, I don't want to. I don't want to cr- critique anyone's meditation practice without hearing about it. So it, it could potentially be that there's like some spiritual bypass there. But I, I think more more so that people forget how complicated the mind really is. The mind is profoundly complicated, way more complicated than our body. Our body is actually fairly simple compared to, compared to the way the mind and the brain work. So what you're asking me in the analogy would be somebody that runs every day and is in good shape and they get a runner's high, but they, you know, they finish their run the rest of the day and they're still not very happy. But, but we're, we exercise, we're supposed to feel happy, right? We're supposed to feel good if we exercise every day. So this person's running, why aren't they feeling good? Well, now there could be a couple different things going on there. One, maybe their environment isn't lending themselves to be very happy or to be at peace, as I talked about earlier. You know, if you go for a run every day, but you come home to an abusive spouse or parents or kids that are not doing well, it doesn't matter. (laughs) I mean, yes, running will make you feel a bit better in the moment, especially while you're running. 
but it won't actually help the environment. So that could be part of it. So someone who's meditating, they might feel great when they're meditating, but if their environment, if the, what the world around them isn't suited to making them feel at peace, we're going to be fighting an uphill battle. The other part of it is that because the mind is so complicated, there can be other pathologies at play here. So now this is an extreme example, but you know, somebody who's dealing with like bipolar disorder or they're schizophrenic or something, those are extreme, but some, some sort of mental pathology like that, if they meditate, sure, they can, they can, they will, it will be helpful. It's still very good for them, but they're going to be dealing with other stuff as well. It's not going to change everything. So meditation is very, very helpful. We have, you know, tons and tons and tons of research that demonstrates how helpful meditation is, but it's not a panacea. It's not going to cure everything because we're far more complex than that. Right. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. 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 And I mean, I mean, meditation, you're becoming mindful of your thoughts. Ideally that that's how you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're yep. supposed to do it. Um, and you're becoming much more aware of what's going on in your mind, but you're not really like analyzing carefully with the aid of a counselor right. and making sense of your past and who you are right now. And, um, understanding why certain parts of you are there and, and really changing behavior. Like meditation won't tell you how to change behavior, right? Exactly. So somebody who's very depressed, you know, meditation might be a really good, uh, like not just a first step, but just a, a, a continual practice to implement in their life. But what's really going to cure them is changing um, their approach to things and, uh, and, and perhaps some uh, past work as well, like looking into their, past and understanding why they're here and making sense of that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, one of the things I tell, you know, cause I do a lot of supervision of younger therapists. And one of the things I talk about a lot is don't overlook the small things. And this isn't a small thing, but I talk about like, don't forget to ask new clients about sleeping and eating because I would not do that for a long time. And I'd be struggling with a client. We wouldn't be getting better. And I, I finally start to ask them about their daily habits, for example, just their general behaviors. And I've had clients that say like, oh yeah, I sleep three hours a night, but that's fine. I don't need any more than that, which we know is biologically not well, not good for anybody. You sleep less than seven hours or so, it actually starts to catch up with you and your brain will start to atrophy. But if I didn't pay attention to that, if we don't pay attention to those behaviors, we're not going to make, we're not going to feel better no matter how much meditation we do or people that uh, are, are only eating 500 calories a day or something. I mean, I'm not going to get into the, the depths of that, but people that are not eating enough or eating too much. Um, they're still not going to make much progress because they're not treating themselves very well here. So as you just said, like meditation is mm. great, but it doesn't teach you healthy behaviors, especially yes. if you've been modeled unhealthy behaviors your whole life. Right. Yeah. It's so difficult to rewire those rigid thought patterns, right? Totally. So you need, you need, you need a pretty strong and informed intervention by a professional who can help you uh, make actual progress um, yeah. rather than just, you know, rather than just being aware of what's going on, you know, the, 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 the real work would come after that when it comes to yes. somebody who's very depressed, let's say you, you want to build the strong foundation and then you can start doing more work. Yes. Yeah. And also I can speak a little bit to my own experience and I know you've also used MDMA before or I have. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we were corresponding over email and in my <laughs> experience, um, you know, like, like meditation, you know, like I said, I still do every day and it makes me more aware of what's, going on inside my head but in in those couple of mdma experiences that i did with a guide and i strongly encourage anybody who's going to do that to do it in a therapeutic context as a mm -hmm. as opposed Definitely. to a recreational context um but the but that but that experience 
it revealed to me what I need to do in many ways and how disconnected mm. I actually am from reality. It yeah. showed it like it really, and I don't know if you have any specific insight into um, what's going on there, but it, it seemed like I was kind of going into my unconscious maybe Absolutely. and looking at the parts of me that were actually really hurting that I wasn't um, actually in tune with. And, and perhaps it was some sort of like a hyper mindfulness of like, I'm really, really going in deep and seeing in the deepest parts of me, like, Oh, what do I need? Oh, I need more gratitude. I need to, I need to let go of this kind of hyper obsessive grip on reality. Um, or, or also I need to acknowledge just all these emotions from childhood that I've been yeah. uh, running away from. Definitely. So, so those kind of things like, like that's very powerful and you can't really get that out of meditation perhaps, but through, psychotherapy or with the aid of psychedelics you're able to really examine these deep part of yourselves that aren't perhaps as readily available um in sober waking consciousness i'm a big proponent of use utilizing whatever tools we have in front of us to help us feel better and to understand ourselves better so absolutely if mdma if what what have you i also live in oregon which has just recently legalized psilocybin research mm. uh and, for, and and work with uh with in, in therapeutic environments, people will be able to use psilocybin clinically. Um, so I'm a big proponent of trying things, to, uh, kind of out-of-the-box things to help us work through our own stuff. So absolutely, I'm glad you had that experience. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And when it comes to uh, childhood, um, is, is that a common denominator amongst your uh, patients? Is that they ha they've had very difficult childhoods? I was going to say that, that they've had a childhood. No, that <laughs> <laughs> they've um, had difficult childhoods. Yes. Um, yeah, it, very stressful, very traumatic. Is is that often uh, one of the major causes for uh, chronic pain? It is common, but it is not a necessity because people develop chronic pain for a number of reasons. As I talked about the ACE score a bit before ago, the adverse childhood experiences. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, I definitely recommend Googling it. It's really interesting. Um, can, can, can anybody take it? Yeah. Well, there's like a brief, there's a brief quiz online. I believe it's been a little bit since I've looked at it and then there's a longer one, but though I believe the brief one is free. So yeah, Google adverse childhood experiences. It's based upon a long, longitudinal study they did out of Kaiser Permanente. Um, mm. and it's something like 80,000 kids they followed for 40 years basically to be able to watch, actually, it's probably more than that at this point, basically to watch what happened with them in terms of their health. And that they found that people with these adverse childhood experiences are more likely to have health related issues, which is fascinating. So yeah, Google it and you can take it and it'll kind of give you an ACE score. Um, but so to answer your question, yes, some people are coming to us. A lot of people are coming to us with trauma from childhood or adverse childhood experiences. Not everybody though. Some people are born kind of more obsessive or more hypervigilant people. And then we have some sort of instance that causes pain or triggers pain, or we get in a car accident or something like that. And because of the way our brain responds to this discomfort, the way our brain responds to problems, we inadvertently end up exacerbating it and getting ourselves caught in a fear, anxiety, pain loop. Um, so to answer your question, yes, there are a lot of people with that issue, but uh, with, with childhood issues that come to us, but there are also plenty that don't, that are, their pain is coming from something else. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I also want to be careful about time here. Um, yeah, a certain time you have to go, like 1230, 1245. Yeah, about 1230, I got to jump off here. So we got 20 okay. minutes or so. Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. 
Um, th- th- just one other thing I want to talk um, that you alluded to previously before we, we talk about some clinical examples that uh-huh. I asked you to sure. keep in mind. Um, yeah, that's the, the self-validation piece and the self-love piece as a way out of the intense in- inner critic. Um, is there a way you recommend that would work best in establishing that kind of self-validation and self-love, any techniques or practices or just any insights you may have on actually developing that when you, when you so automatically just are so self-critical of yourself? Well, in, in brief, without, without going too deep into it, one of the things people struggle with, and this is true for all of us, including myself, is that we're not fully aware of what our thoughts or how we're treating ourselves. Even though we think we are, we're not fully aware because of the way our mind works. So what we want to do is bring things and thoughts that are in the, in the subconscious into the conscious mind. So, uh, the, and the easiest way to do this, the easiest way to do this at home without any, you know, money spent on a psychotherapist or anything is just to write them down. So when we find ourselves in a situation where we're self-critical or we're in self-doubt, we want to write down those self-critical or doubting thoughts. And then instead, and then beyond that, write what it is that we'd rather be thinking about ourselves or what we want to tell ourselves. That's, we found that, you know, Nicole Sachs is a big proponent of journaling as a way of, uh, expressing, expressing our emotions and more, more importantly in this regard, uh, helping to change our thoughts, help This is kind of cognitive behavioral therapy here. So I, I would encourage you and whoever else to actually spend some time. And I know it's not fun, but spend some time to spend some time sitting down and writing those thoughts down and then how you would actually like to be thinking or how you would like to be treating yourself in that moment. Mm. The, separ- the separation from, you know, trying to change a behavior when it's um, a cognitive behavior, when it's in our heads is very difficult without like saying it out loud or writing it down. It's really, really difficult. Uh, it's, it's near impossible. And people, that's where people go wrong is they oftentimes try to change a cognitive behavior, meaning a behavior around their thoughts just by thinking differently, as opposed to actually writing it down or speaking it out loud. It's one of the reasons why therapy is helpful for people is that mm. they separate themselves a little bit from thoughts by speaking it out loud. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah. Yeah. So when you're writing it down, you're, you're first of all becoming more aware potentially as you're forced to write words on the page. Yes. You, you realize what's actually going on to some extent. And then, then writing down the, the things you, you want, um, the way you want to look at yourself and, and others that could uh, help enforce those things internally. Yes, it, exactly. Change behavior. And it's really okay. simple. There's nothing complicated about that. But we, again, we have tons of research that demonstrates, oh, that actually helps people because the more, you, when you actually spend time to write it down, kind of cements it in your brain as, oh, I'm, I'm taking this seriously. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And, and sometimes for, for me and, and for many other people, you, you try to just kind of do it in your head. You're right. <laughs> just exactly. You're, just because you're lazy and you, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Same thing like when you're trying to do math, some kind of complicated math thing, and you're like trying totally. to work it through your head. It's like, oh, fuck, I can't even do this. So you got to write it down. And exactly. Then, then you can do it. And then it works. Exactly. It's the exact same thing. People try to try to think their way through these problems when part of the problem is their thoughts. So we have to do something outside of just thinking our way out of it. It's mm-hmm. a lot easier to... Uh, learn how to swing a baseball or sorry, swing a baseball bat by actually doing it than it is to try and then like to think about it. You can mm. think about picking up the bat and you can think about swinging, but that's really hard to do <laughs> and then actually go do it. So it's better to actually tang- make something tangible in our lives to actually change it. So, right. And on that note, do you have any recommendations for uh, kind of a journaling practice for anybody who's will it, who's 
wants to get into this and wants to change their behavior? Is there anything in particular like you'd recommend like a certain time format or any insights you might have on that? Yeah. Well, if people are looking for something really structured, I mentioned her before. Her name is Nicole Sachs, and she's very much focused on the chronic pain world, but she does a lot of journaling stuff for that and and for just the general population as well. So I do recommend Nicole Sachs. She's got a lot of great prompts there um, if that's something you need. If you're starting off and journaling... Is that like I'm in a, her book or something or videos? She, she has... If you go to her website, she has a program that you can buy that has a bunch of prompts. And I... You know, it's been a little bit, it's been a year or two since I've looked at the program. Um, but when in the past, you just kind of buy what you pay the flat fee and then she gives you a whole bunch of prompts and a whole pro it's like a 30 day program. Um, or maybe it's even longer than that at this point, honestly, I don't remember, mm. but if you just Google her, she comes up, she's great. Nicole Sachs, S A C H. Got it. S. Um, noted. Yeah. But as far as journaling in general, like without even wanting to spend the money with that, the most important thing about journaling is actually doing it. It's kind of like mindfulness in that it's doing it is the is good practice whether you are th you think you are journaling correctly or not it is the practice of doing it that is is the good practice so uh you know you can even just start off by asking myself how am i feeling today and what am i thinking today mm. and if you journal that for five to ten minutes a day you're well on your way that is that's great progress right there that's more than most people do and it's really beneficial for you i'm a big proponent of I don't always encourage my clients to do it because a lot of times clients will be like, I absolutely hate journaling, which I understand. Um, but I personally really enjoy journaling and have found it to be very helpful for me. Getting mm. my thoughts onto paper helps me really separate myself from them and slows them down because otherwise my thoughts kind of like the way I speak, <laughs> they come pretty fast. Mm. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I have friends who've had different experiences and they find like they can't make any progress when writing things down. But yeah, but for, for me, it's very surprising when I just started journaling a few weeks ago, and um, as I'm writing, like, how am I feeling today? Like, that's how I would start. Yep. You know, today, this is on my, this is really on my mind. This is really bothering me. Yep. And then just kind of flush, you know, just kind of flush that out. And maybe because I'm a writer, it might come a little easier possibly. But right. then, totally. then I just start to like break down like, oh, this is why I'm feeling this way. This is where it's coming from. And this is maybe what I could do. I could use these tools and these things. And it just really makes it concrete. And, and I think sometimes for very kind of intellectual rational thinking people like myself, we, we avoid like these easy things of, of writing things down. And we, uh, like we were saying earlier, we just try to like process it in our heads. But totally. That totally. doesn't really get us anywhere. Exactly. And uh, we should also, so we should talk about um, uh, an example, I guess you, you have about 50 more minutes. Um, I also wanted to do a bit of a, a live demonstration with me. Um, do you, do you want to maybe give one, example of a client um, we did that with dr clark and with a few other therapists we've had on and those tend to be very powerful and interesting um and is there a particular example perhaps that's maybe a little related to what i'm going through possibly i know um, i emailed you a little bit about that if there's anything on your mind um yeah. th those examples tend to be very revealing and tend to help people who are uh, on the journey still uh, themselves yeah, I'm trying to think, uh, you mentioned obviously working with knee pain and chest pain or dealing with that kind of stuff. I'm trying to think of the top of my head. You'll have to forgive me. I didn't have much time to look back through my notes. Yeah, no, no um, worries. Um, uh, and, and I, I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but I've been doing this for over a decade. So sometimes it's <laughs> everybody, yeah, yeah. it's hard to think of individuals. Let me, uh, there's one in particular that I, this is not knee pain or chest pain, but bear with me. There's one in particular who is an early client of mine. And that's why he mm -hmm. sticks with me because it was so transformative for me too, uh, early, early on the first couple of years of being a therapist. 
um, one client who had not used his uh, hands or his wrists in about seven years because of extreme, just debilitating pain. And when I say not use his hands or wrists, I literally mean that he could pick up a fork for about a minute and then it would just hurt so much. So he couldn't uh, use really? his, his arms. That, that yeah. sounds crazy. That sounds insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was in both of, it was bilateral. So it was in both of his arms and he, um, he's a lawyer still is a lawyer. Uh, and, uh, he would, you know, all of his writing, he would work from home or he'd go into the office, but all of his writing would have to be voice to text at that point. And this was a decade ago, um, because he couldn't type, he, he truly could not, you know, could not use his wrists. And we talked a lot about him at that point. He was thinking of having a kid and he was just like crying, thinking about, I'm not even going to be able to hold my kid. This is awful. And the work that we did was very similar to the work that we do with almost everybody, which is coming, gathering evidence, uh, building and gathering evidence that shows us that our pain is more neuroplastic is that our pain is not structurally based that for him, for example, that, Oh, there's actually nothing seriously wrong with my wrists here. In fact, there's really nothing out of the ordinary with my wrists at all. Now he had had MRIs on his wrists and they showed, you know, a few little things here and there, but nothing that we wouldn't consider just like wrinkles on the inside. That's what one of the doctors I work with always talks about. He's like, those are just wrinkles on the inside of our body. They're not anything wrong. It's just part of aging, part of being a human. So he had really nothing wrong with his wrists and uh, we built that evidence to him that, okay, this pain is neuroplastic. This is a, a neural circuit issue that has to do more with my brain than it does with the, my wrists. And it came on when he was lifting weights. Uh, as I said, it was about seven years prior to when I met him. Um, and it came on very suddenly in both wrists and it would bounce from wrist to wrist. And sometimes it would be there at the exact same time. Um, and the work we did was a lot of exposure work, which was, uh, again, after we built confidence that this was neuroplastic, we did a lot of exposure work towards typing because typing was absolutely terrifying to him because it caused so much pain, just searing pain. And so one of the first things I had him do was um, hold his hands above the keyboard, above the keyboard on his, la on his computer there. And uh, a transformative moment for him was that holding his hands above the keyboard without even touching it. And I just had him hold them there for maybe a minute or two, not very long, but just about a minute or so his pain started to flare up and he ended up actually laughing at that. He said, this is so funny. I'm holding my wrists above the keyboard here and I'm not doing anything. I'm not moving anything. And yet my pain is starting to flare up. Just thinking about putting my hands on the keyboard here, which really helped him build confidence about what was going on here that, okay, this is, this is absolutely a neuroplastic issue. There's nothing wrong with my wrists here that even just like thinking about it and looking at a keyboard would cause pain. That's absolutely ridiculous from a structural perspective, which felt really mm. good to him because he was able to be less afraid of any sort of movement with his wrists then. So then the next thing we did, so eventually over a handful of sessions, he was able to start typing and uh, it, did, well, it didn't happen magically overnight, but over the next few sessions, he was able to start typing, move his wrists. And then the next thing he wanted to do was be able to play guitar because he loved playing guitar. And one time in between sessions, he just sent me a video and it was him playing. I can't remember what song it was, but playing a song <laughs> on guitar. And he was crying as he was doing it because he was so wow. happy. He was just, I've never been so happy. This is amazing. And he, to this day, he'll, he'll send me an email probably mm. every few months or so, just like thanking me again, which wow. it really, you know, honestly, it had nothing to do with me. I was there to support him and kind of guide him, but he did a lot of the work and he, he, he really challenged himself there, which was pretty profound. Mm. So it was, I, I yeah. know that's not related to chest pain or knee pain, no, so no, my apologies, yeah. but that's the first no one that comes up. And, for sure. um, if you, if you give me more time next time, perhaps I can, uh, 
yeah, I yeah. can give you more specific examples. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, th- I think we'll do this again too at some point. But also for, for certain clients, is it true that um, the way out is more so uh, acknowledging and processing and feeling uh, repressed emotions from childhood? That was one thing Dr. Clark was saying a lot is people who have had very difficult childhoods, for them, the way out is acknowledging the pain that that child faced and really embracing it and kind of being there for your inner child who went through all that pain, who didn't have a lot of safety there. And, and somehow that can be um, a way out of your chronic pain. He, he was explaining that to me carefully, but it still mm-hmm. didn't mm-hmm. really make sense to me what he was getting at. And I don't know if you have any insights about that based on yeah. your clinical experience. Well, there's two, there are two things go- going on here. It's a good question because in the chronic pain world, there's, I mean, there's lots of us therapists and doctors and PTs and everybody working in chronic pain. And there are kind of two paths within the, within the thinking that I work in and the same as Dr. Clark, um, who's also based here in Portland. Uh, but th- there are two paths to treating chronic pain and one is more topical and superficial. And that is what I just described with this gentleman with the wrist pain, wrist and arm pain. It was a more topical uh, treatment because when I say topical, I mean, we didn't dive a whole lot into his trauma as a kid because he was caught in what we'd call a fear pain loop, meaning he was absolutely terrified of the pain in and of itself, which can be self-perpetuating. So when we are really, really afraid of discomfort, we actually heighten anxiety in our brain and anxiety is a is a cause and trigger for pain. So that's why when we feel anxious, oftentimes our head hurts or our stomach hurts, as I talked about. So uh, for him, it was actually just breaking that loop of anxiety and fear. Um, whereas for a lot of people, especially with people with deeper trauma or, or more childhood, adverse childhood experiences, we do need to go into what makes them feel less safe. So let, let's say, for example, that you had a parent that, let's say you had a divorced, divorced parents you grew up with both parents, one left when you were 11 and just left, just literally got up and left. And you didn't know, uh, you didn't know that was happening. Just wake, woke up one day and parent, or dad is mom or dad is just gone. Now, what that's going to do to you is that's kind of like that tree growing, you know, growing in off the side. Of the Although, um, gonna... one thing, I don't know if you can improvise with this or if you have an experience yeah. with this, but I mean, if we want to make it kind of close to home, like if, if you're in an environment where you, there's a lot of stress from like parents fighting all the time. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Would so that work? If, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So if you're in a lot of, if you grew up in an environment where parents are constantly fighting, now our parents are the primary models for how we live in the world. So what, that's what we see as how relationships function. And that's how we see the safety of relationships with everyone else. Does that make sense? Like what, what we see in our parents is how we perceive relationships to be mm, Yep. because those are the, that's the relationship that we're, we're most acutely aware of as a kid. Um, and that relationship where parents are fighting all the time, that's not a very safe relationship, right? That's not a very, uh, right. it, that's an anxiety ridden relationship. And so we're going to grow up in an environment thinking that, oh, that's how relationships are. And there's going to be a certain amount of anxiety when it comes to relationships, whether it be romantic relationships or friendships or what have you, mm. we're going to be constantly expecting fights to happen or something mm. to someone to start yelling or someone to get mad at the other person. Right. Or, or also apart from our expectations for our, our own relationships, like just the, just that environment, there's so much going on there, right? The hypervigilance. Exactly. Your body was kind of being on alert, worrying for when the next fight is going to break out. 
right? Yes, exactly. And then, try, and then trying to do something about it and trying to fix it and it not working out, that whole dynamic. A hundred percent. And it becomes subconscious over time because, you know, the environment we grow up in, we just get used to. We don't think that it's anything that crazy or that weird. So we just get used to it. So it becomes subconscious, that hypervigilance and that what we would call anxiety, essentially. Um, and so we go into the world and we're living with a certain amount of anxiety, not realizing that that is actually causing us to behave and act in certain ways. So somebody growing up with parents who are constantly fighting, we go into a romantic relationship. It's going to be a bit harder for us to be vulnerable and to expect safety in that relationship because of what was modeled for us because of a certain expectation. Again, it could be a subconscious expectation at this point, but that it's going to be tumultuous, that it's going to be difficult and there's going to be yelling and screaming involved or maybe right. even like, or maybe even violence involved. Right. And, so, and tying this and tying this to chronic pain then, because um, I was asking about, somebody who's gone through that kind of experience they're mm -hmm. you know they're, they're my age or the whatever age they are and so they're dealing with chronic pain and they're looking at this difficult childhood yep uh, like what what's the what like how could going into that childhood and processing and acknowledging those emotions how could that heal chronic pain or or, or if there's a different way you would word that um that whole process well what we're after in the chronic pain world constantly is helping people to try to find safety and I don't mean like physical safety from somebody chasing them. I mean, yes, that too, if that's actually happening, but I mean, emotional safety is feeling safe in our bodies and with other people and from our own feelings. So, uh, oftentimes what we found the, the one constant, whether it be, well, the one constant through all pain research is that people that develop chronic pain feel unsafe to a certain degree. Now that may sound crazy. It may sound unrelatable, but we don't mean like unsafe in the phys in the present moment physically. We mean emotionally. They have a harder time feeling their feelings. I relate to this myself. So, going back into your childhood, going back and understanding why uh, or how we develop this kind of hypervigilance or this obsessiveness can help us to relearn safety in the present day. Because we're always trying to lean mm. into safety. We're always trying to find ways to feel safe in the moment. Um, this is what happens when we develop chronic pain is that we become, we feel even more unsafe and therefore become more anxious or more hypervigilant. And that, again, as I mentioned before, that fear, that fear pain loop, it kind of increases the loop, kind of it's a vicious cycle there. Whereas once we start to feel safer and we understand, oh, why is it that I am hypervigilant about this? Why is it that I'm scared of when somebody is angry with me and I avoid confrontation? What happens then? Do I, why do I become hypervigilant then? Why do I become very worried then? What is it that I can do to make myself feel safer in that moment? And I actually start to see physiologic differences in the way we feel. So mm. in, in the, in the, on the most topical end, it could be that somebody's having a panic attack. Much deeper than that, it could be that people's having a striated or smooth muscle discomfort. And by that, I mean like back pain would be striated muscle or smooth muscle would be like stomach aches. And those are all very commonly affected by um, our sense of safety in the moment. Does that answer your mm. question? It's it's pretty mm. complicated. So I, I get that it's yeah it's it's a little it's a little hard to grasp sometimes. But as I said, we can actually predict who's going to have chronic pain based on fMRIs of people's brains. And your brain forms based on the way, uh, you know, just like your brain and body form, or just like your body does as well, your brain forms based on your upbringing and the sense of safety you have there. Mm. And, and, you know, when talking to Dr. Clark, his emphasis on feeling those childhood emotions mm -hmm. and acknowledging that pain and sort of being that and sort of being a parent looking yep. 
back at that child self and kind of, uh, I had a very recent uh, beautiful experience with that that I'm going to write about at some point, but oh, good. that was, good. That, 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 that was kind of the theme of it. Um, but good. is that, but, but how, how could that possibly help with chronic pain? Cause that's what Dr. Clark was emphasizing a lot as well yeah. as having kind of a pride that you've kind of made it this far and uh, acknowledging all that pain that you went through um, and just being, just having gratitude for, for being here in this moment and not being um, still stuck in that situation, possibly. I think the most simple, the, the simplest way to uh, explain that is, and this is well explained in the book, The Body Keeps the Score. I'm not sure if you've read that one, but um, it, you've heard the old expression, like you don't want to bottle up your anger and store it there. You don't want it because it'll come out in other ways, or you don't want to bottle up those feelings. It's it's kind of a cliche to say, but it is based on a lot of truth in that when we experience an emotion, when we are in a situation that causes us to have some anger or some upset of some kind, whether it be sadness or anger or what have you, or fear, if we don't allow ourselves to feel that, it and I know this sounds abstract, but it gets stored in the body. It actually affects the way our body and our mind work at that point. So what Dr. Clark is hinting at is getting to getting at is that we need to be able to feel those feelings in order to feel safe. So let's say, let's go with the cliche that if somebody makes you really angry as a kid and you don't allow, you're not allowed to feel it, you're not allowed to express that, you're not allowed to manage it in some way, you're going to store up that anger in, say, this internal bottle in your mind. And what happens is that bottle starts to overflow after a while if we never let ourselves feel anger. And that's what that's where havoc happen we wreak havoc on our bodies when that bottle is overflowing so allowing ourselves to feel those feelings that we maybe couldn't feel at that time empties that bottle and makes things a little bit calmer for us does that Mm. it's kind of an abstract analogy i know yeah no no that actually makes some sense and it, it could be that we are feeling it at that time but maybe not with like a kind of safety like you're just yes. kind of stuck you're yes. like and I don't know what, like how to exactly word it because like this is so subjective, but like you're in that situation at that time with so much stress and you, you feel all that anxiety, but you don't know what to do with it maybe, or you don't know what to, where to go with it. Um, and so well, you and feel it, so unsafe. And yeah. Maybe, and, yeah. Well, I don't want to jump in here. Sorry, but I'm almost, yeah. I do got to jump off here in a couple of minutes, but just yeah. so, you, just so you know, anxiety is not a feeling. Anxiety is the protection of a feeling. So when we say people, people think of, oh, I'm feeling all this anxiety. I'm feeling my feelings. Well, anxiety is actually there to protect you from a feeling. We get anxiety for two reasons, because there's a physical threat. So if somebody's chasing you with a gun, you're going to have anxiety or an emotional threat. That's when we have anxiety as well. So it's uh, the emotional threat can be internal or it could be somebody yelling at us. Uh, but either way, that's not anxiety is not the feeling we necessarily want to self, allow ourselves to feel. There's a feeling underneath mm. that that we want to feel. So when people are in mm. a situation and there it's a conf, it's confrontation, for example, and they're feeling really anxious, oftentimes there's anger underneath that for somebody mm. confronting them, but they don't want to let themselves feel that anger. Mm. So, anger, resentment, frustration. Exactly. Yes. And, exactly. And so then later, so then when you're an adult, you know, going back into childhood and feeling it, like you were saying, that could release those bottled up emotions. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it brings a sense of safety to our mind because our brain thinks, okay, I'm not allowed to feel this. So that's, that's a dangerous feeling. I'm not allowed to feel this. That's a dangerous feeling. So every time we're a kid, if we're not allowed to feel anger or frustration or resentment, then our every time we feel it as an adult, our brain says, oh yeah, this is the dangerous feeling. We're, we're not safe here. We shouldn't be feeling this. Mm. So what we feel is anxiety instead. 
Right. And, and so to close the loop on that, then releasing those emotions, like, so, so those emotions are contributing to the chronic pain. Well, so by feeling them, you're able to do, do what exactly? Well, so the, the emotions are contributing to the chronic pain in that they make us feel less safe. We know that there's a direct correlation between anxiety and chronic pain. So feeling unsafe makes our, gives us, a, gives us chronic pain. And that's true. Again, as I said, go back to the very first example, if you feel unsafe, going about to give a, give a talk to somebody, you're going to have stomach issues. So uh, when we feel those feelings, it retrains our brain to say, oh, resentment, anger, those things are actually safe. I can feel them now. I won't just feel anxiety. Does, mm. that, does that make sense? It's, it's complicated. I and know. then there's a lot of research right. in this by um, Alan Abbas, who's the, uh, based out of Halifax, who's done a, a, who's created a, or he wasn't created, but he's done a lot of training and is, does train a lot of people in ISTDP, which is a, a therapy that does a lot of emotional release work. Mm. Yeah. And, and then what you just described there, then that can help alleviate that chronic pain because you're feeling those emotions and you're establishing safety. Yes. So that lets, so that takes, so, you know, it's, it's so hard to describe these physiological things because they, to some extent can be described, but, but you're, by feeling right. these emotions, then you're releasing potential tension that's kind of stuck in the body. Yes. We wouldn't even call it tension necessarily because most pain isn't caused by muscle tension. Right. Um, okay. But yes, but you could call it like you could call it psychic tension. Right. Got, Got it. it. Got yeah. it. Okay. Well, listen. It was great talking to you, Daniel. Yeah, we didn't get to do time. a demonstration. My apologies. Yeah. But maybe no maybe worries. sometime in the future we can. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe next month or at some point it'll be good to have you on. We we try to have um, a few guests that um, um, provide a lot of insights to come on kind of a, a couple of times because it's it's hard to fit everything in into one conversation. So totally. Yeah. Definitely. Let's let's do it again and talk maybe more um, about specific examples, specific case studies. Yep. Um, and also do a live demonstration. That'd be sure. awesome. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was great to have you on. Really appreciate your time. And uh, please keep doing what you're doing. I think it's it's really, really important. And so many people are struggling with this. So so, yeah. so even this conversation, I hope um, once it's uploaded on Spotify, Apple and wherever, um, if people listen to it, um, hopefully they can take away something from it and and start to really get out of this trap of, of, of thinking that something's wrong with their bodies and not actually addressing underlying psychological right. issues. Definitely. I hope it's helpful. So thanks yeah. for having me on, Rob. I appreciate yeah, thanks, it. Thanks, Daniel. Of course. All right. Bye -bye. Have a good day.